Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Checkup Podcast from Medcast. In this series, we discuss the importance of physical activity for the patients and just how far it goes in preventing and improving specific health conditions. And most importantly, discuss the underlying mechanisms of just how physical activity helps and the most up-to-date evidence of which types of exercise are potentially better for each specific medical condition. In this episode in the series, Dr. Alison Vickers, a GP of 33 years, and David Jenkins, a Professor of Sports and Exercise Science from the University of Sunshine Coast and the University of Queensland, discuss the role of exercise in prevention and management of diabetes. Hi, David. Great to catch up again. I think this is our fifth in the series on exercise and different medical conditions, and definitely this series would not be complete without a discussion about diabetes and exercise. There there would not be a GP out there who has not seen the effect that lifestyle and including particularly exercise can have on someone's management of their type 2 diabetes. And we don't just see it in our patients. We read about it all the time. I I just read a 2020 article from the RACGP uh, saying structured exercise training is associated with a reduction in HbA1c of 0.67. This is this is as good as as most of the drugs without any of the side effects and lots of additional benefits. I actually find it really helpful when you're talking to patients about lifestyle to get down and kind of really explain to them how getting, you know, the higher glucose levels down by getting that glucose into the cells really helps to motivate them. And now you've sent me some information that I did not know about, about what is actually happening at a cellular level as we exercise, and I think it's so important. So can we start by going through that? What actually happens as we exercise to glucose and insulin? Sure. And just just to sort of provide additional context here, Alison, so the mechanisms that we'll talk about very briefly now, the physiological mechanisms, this transport and and, um, uh, uptake of glucose into muscle from blood that we'll talk about occurs in the absence of weight loss, you know, so often we, we put weight loss as the, as the sort of cornerstone of all the health benefits relating to exercise. The beauty of this mechanism that we're going to briefly talk about now in a second occurs independent of weight loss. So, um, and, and this is really important to explain to people if, if you possibly can. So even if they're not losing weight in response to an exercise session or a series of exercise training programs, we will still get health benefits. And, and the, it comes down to understanding uh, what, what happens to insulin when we exercise. So when we exercise, there is a release of adrenaline and noradrenaline, and this suppresses insulin release. So when we exercise, even moderately, but particularly higher intensity of exercise, but even moderate exercise, we have a suppression of insulin. Now, this is a curious thing to occur because you think, well, insulin is necessary for the uptake of glucose into cells and all sorts of things like that. And that's true, but the reason why we get a suppression of insulin during exercise is that without insulin circulating, we can release free fatty acids from fat cells, which are necessary for the muscles to take up and to use for extended exercise. So if we still had insulin circulating during exercise, one of the things that that the listeners may recall is that insulin does a couple of things. 
It's primarily a storage hormone, so it promotes the storage of glucose into muscles, storage of glucose into the liver, but it also uh, promotes the storage of glucose and the storage of fat. Now, during exercise, we don't want the storage of fat. We want the fat to be made available as a substrate or a fuel. So, I guess through evolution, and you can imagine, if we are living as hunter-gatherers, living in the wild and other animals as well, we don't want insulin to be circulating during exercise because we want the fat to be released from adipose tissue to be used as the muscles, uh, by the muscles rather. I, I just find that, as I say, it just goes against everything that I had thought. This, you know, always had this concept of, you know, insulin coming to let the glucose open the doors, let the glucose into the cells. But I mean, that makes absolute sense that we don't want to go into a storage state during exercise. We want to go into a utilization state. But how then, if the insulin is down, how do we get the glucose into the cells, like the muscle cells, so that we can use it and fuel us? <laughs> Good question. So what researchers have identified is the, again, the listeners, yeah, our listeners would, will recall that in response to uh, a muscle uh, being innovated to contract as calcium released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So this is inside the muscle fiber or muscle cell. This calcium is used to trigger or, or one of the one of the consequences of the calcium being released inside the cell, this calcium initiates movement of GLUT4 from the storage sites within the cell to the cell membrane, and the calcium also allows the entry of the glucose from the blood into the muscle in the absence of insulin. So it's a it's a curious backup or an alternative pro, uh, procedure or mechanism that allows glucose simply as a result of the contractile process to enter the muscle cells from the blood. And this is perfect because when you think about it, if we've got a type 2 diabetic or a pre-diabetic who's got insulin resistance, insulin is not needed now for the, for the, for the glucose to enter the, the muscle cells. Um, so it's, it's, it's a win-win. Wow. So you're exercising, and in the middle of that exercising, moving your, your, your muscles, doing stuff, you're actually sucking glucose into those muscle cells, out of the circulation, but you're also not raising insulin levels. And we know that, you know, high insulin levels aren't that good. So this is, this is like fantastic. So um, in terms of maximizing this, how do we maximize this effect? Does it mean that we exercise for longer or we use more muscles, exercise more intensely? How do we maximize this kind of sucking in of that glucose into muscle cells? So it's the contractile process itself which allows the glucose to enter. And if you extend this and extrapolate it out, so if we want to in turn maximize the disposal or the uptake of glucose into muscle and and the consequence of this will be a reduction in blood glucose concentrations which is is the the desired outcome isn't it for for people who with who have uh, high resting levels anyway then it it makes sense that we exercise large muscle groups so the more more the muscle mass that we can exercise the greater this contractile, non-insulin-dependent uptake of glucose from the blood into muscle will be. And the other thing to do for us to remember is that, and we've spoken about this a couple of times, but 
If we can exercise even for short periods at a, a slightly higher intensity than normal, what this higher intensity exercise will do is to recruit the fast twitch muscle fibers. So we'll be engaging more of that muscle mass, more fibers within that muscle mass. Um, so again, if we want to take this one step further again, if we can do an exercise session that engages our legs, and some of our upper body muscles, I'm thinking about swimming, um, maybe circuit training, maybe um, Zumba, dance, uh, aerobics, things like this. This is going to be particularly good because the, the uptake of the glucose in the absence of insulin will only be occurring in the active and contracting skeletal muscle. So it makes sense that we can exercise using larger muscle mass slightly higher intensity, then we're going to get greater disposal and therefore greater reductions in blood glucose. Wow. So basically exercise using as many muscles as you can. Uh, and in is it better to do it in one big lot or in a few smaller, like do it a few times through the day? Ah, uh, you've got me back to the frequency, which I... Ah, I love the frequency. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very kind. You're about the only person I know who knows about my frequency uh, um, peculiarity here. But I, I'm, I'm beginning to think, and again, I'm, I'm seeing this as an aging adult myself, Alison, that if you can exercise, and we've spoken about this in, in the reduction of inflammation and um, in previous uh, uh, podcasts that we've done together, but if we can exercise probably three, four times a day, even even for shorter periods of time, we're going to get this uh, uptake of glucose without insulin by the muscles on a, fre a more frequent basis. And uh, again, your listeners will be aware of the dangers of sitting um, and the popularity that this is now gaining traction in, uh, in social media and all sorts of other uh, mainstream outlets as well. So there are dangers if we sit for more than 15 minutes at a time. We have to try and break this up by standing up. And, and this has been known for a long time, but the mechanisms are, have been perhaps a little bit uncertain. One of the potential mechanisms that's been used to uh, explain why avoidance of sitting for long periods of time and standing, even walking for short periods, is the, the, the muscle's contraction and the uptake of the glucose. So it's lowering the blood glucose concentrations by standing frequently, walking frequently, and so forth. So, so the frequency becomes important at ev virtually every level. And so just coming back to the insulin, if you've done maybe 10, 15 minutes, you've gone up got up and skipped, you know, in the middle of uh, between seeing patients or you've got somebody to go out and get the shopping and carry it in and they've had a bit of an exercise. How long does that suppression of the insulin last? And how, how it, it, what happens after that in terms of insulin sensitivity? Okay, so the, 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 the sensitivity of the muscles, or the increased permeability of the muscles rather, to glucose extends beyond the exercise session. So, so if we're talking about um, a more structured exercise session where you might go for a cycle ride or a swim or a walk or a jog, things like that, then we know that the insulin suppression during exercise will result in this non-insulin dependent uptake of glucose into blood, uh, into the muscle rather. 
But what we also know is that this extends, there's a, there's a bit of a tail that extends into the recovery period. And your question is spot on, Alison. If you were to run a marathon, and I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you were to run a marathon... There'd be no chance of that, don't worry. This is not happening in any universe. So. No, snap, snap. <laughs> uh, but if, if we were to run an, a, a marathon in, a, in an alternative parallel universe, uh, this increased uptake of glucose would, could last up to 24 hours. So if it, this uptake of glucose into the muscles and the absence of insulin following just a normal exercise session can last several minutes, uh, it, perhaps up to maybe half an hour or an hour, depending upon the intensity and the duration of exercise, in other words. Um, so, so we can get this, we can actually get a post-exercise um, benefit, uh, which is independent of insulin. Now, in addition to all of this, we also get the muscle cells in particular have it getting an increased sensitivity to insulin, and this will occur in response to just one training session. So in addition to the, the, the uptake of the glucose during exercise itself in the absence of insulin, insulin becomes more effective simply in response to one session of exercise. And this increased insulin sensitivity can last a day perhaps two days. Wow. So it is a win-win for everyone, but particularly for our patients with diabetes. In the process of exercising, they're getting their um, uh, glucose levels down, uh, and as well as that, their insulin levels down. And then following the exercise, there's still some of that effect, but even prolonged after that is that they are more sensitive to the insulin that they have got. And obviously, that has to be a benefit um, as, as well, because that's what we try to do with some of the medications. So really extraordinary benefits in the moment for any type of a, a sort of exercise, whether it is, you know, going to the gym, going for a run, going for a swim, but just any incidental activity where you're using your, using your muscles and obviously the more muscles, the better, whether it's gardening, playing with the grandkids, you know, really understanding that every bit of movement is, is a help. So that's kind of in the sh in the immediate term. What about the chronic, the, the sort of benefits of long term uh, doing extra exercise, which is I think what I've always focused more on with patients. Mm. Before we, uh, and that's that's the, the natural progression. But before we leave this, um, and I meant to mention this, it's my fault. I'm remiss not mentioning this to you in a in a uh, just a couple of minutes ago. But if we can exercise immediately before or immediately after a meal, we're going to reduce the postprandial glucose response. Um, so the timing of the exercise, you talked about the frequency and, and frequency of exercises is, I, I believe, critically important. But nonetheless, if we can time any exercise that we've got planned during the day, immediately before or after exercise, we're going to uh, encourage in the absence of insulin, um, the disposal of the the glucose that's likely to increase in the blood as a result of the food that we consume. So timing that um, is going to be pretty clever too. Now, just did you want to ask a question about that? 
No, I was just kind of like summarising that in my head and thinking, you know, we have guidelines from places like the RACGP uh, that say people with type 2 diabetes should have at least 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise per week and two to three half-hour sessions of resistance exercise on non-consecutive days. So, you know, we give that to patients and, yes, that's helpful, but really this is much more uh prescriptive in terms of motivating our patients, being able to explain to them and talk to them. And I'm just summarizing the things that you've said, you know, use your muscles, the more muscles, the better, increase the intensity, do it for short periods and do it around meal times before or after and you get more benefits and kind of like, especially if you're not an exercise person, work out how you work that in into your life, still filling, fitting within the parameters of the hours per day. Uh, I think this is such powerful stuff in terms of motivating patients. And the other thing, without me unnecessarily repeating this, it, th- this will occur in the absence of weight loss or fat loss. Um, and, and again, this is a critical message that w- that seems to be missed in a lot of the popular information at least that comes out. So people are in, have the misunderstanding that if they don't lose fat or they don't lose weight, it's not being helpful. They're not getting, they're not getting any gains or benefits. And yet this mechanism we've just been describing is a classic mechanism that can be used if it can be articulated to patients and all of a sudden they realize well fat loss is not that important it's certainly not important for improving my health i don't need to lose weight in order to get improvements particularly in in uh, blood uh, blood glucose control glucose homeostasis I, I think it's so important you've made that that point again because I think we do focus very much on the fact that you know you need to have weight loss to show that it's that it's having an effect and certainly our guidelines talk about you know loss of weight uh, and and how it can fit, affect medical parameters uh, but I think it's incredibly motivating and uh, really a take home message to me to make sure that I make patients understand that they're getting these benefits even if they're not losing weight that all of this is happening and, and I mean we all have patients that have are carrying a lot of extra weight who don't have diabetes that are managing their sugar well so while weight is obviously playing a, an important part it is not everything and I think that is would that be what what you're saying Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But then if we come back and look at the sort of longer term benefits of exercise training uh, for the type 2 diabetic, we can we can examine the changes that will occur, perhaps. Uh, uh, yeah, the muscle mass, again, comes it comes down to two things here, Alison, long term. So exercise training or regular exercise, it'll be maintaining or potentially even increasing the muscle mass. Now, Recognize that muscle is the largest reservoir that can take up and store glucose. The, the muscle mass arguably is the most valuable tissue uh, that we have in the body. Um, so anything that increases or maintains that, as we, particularly as we age, is going to be absolutely essential to this capacity to take up glucose during activity levels and to store it. So that's the first thing. The other thing, too, is that and this is not necessarily a, a, a given, but 
we, we can, if we're very careful also about the amount of energy or calories that we consume. In other words, we're going to bring diet briefly into the picture here too. But if we're careful about our diet and we still exercise over a long period of time, there's, there's a reasonable chance that we can reduce our visceral fat tissue. That is the fat that's packed around these internal organs that is especially dangerous. And in doing that, we can increase, uh, decrease rather our low-grade chronic long-term systemic inflammation, um, which comes back to a particularly fond area of area that you're particularly fond of, the inflammatory response and so forth. So um, there are some long-term gains as well as the acute gains that we've, we've described uh, a couple of minutes ago. Okay, so basically we've got that, is that acute response while we're exercising, but obviously looking long-term, you build up your muscles, you've got more muscles to suck in that glucose, you decrease your visceral fat, you potentially decrease your, your insulin levels because they don't have to be as high, you decrease the chronic inflammation. So again, it, it's just a win-win-win. And, you know, I think about this not only with my diabetes patients, but with the patients I look after with PCOS. I think this is going to be extremely motivating for them because they've got an extra hard job uh, in, in terms of, of managing these, these sort of risks. So uh, I think it's very refreshing um, to look at this topic from this sort of perspective, and I, I, again, I say I think that being able to explain this to our patients is going to be extremely motivating. Uh, so I think I'll be, you know, talking to patients about the more muscle, the better, the more you use, the better, that being glucose being sucked in, the higher intensity, small amounts more often, I think to motivate them, uh, because for me that's very motivating, knowing that I don't have to go out for an hour, I can just do a little bit um, at, a, at a time. Uh, and the, the fact that basically trying to arrange it around a mealtime too, all things that don't require much extra effort and you get extra bang for your buck. So I think an incredibly important topic and very refreshing to have, you know, a slightly different angle to it. So uh, uh, thank you, David. I, I think that's extremely useful. So much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Alison. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye. That was Dr. Alison Vickers and Professor David Jenkins discussing the latest evidence in the use of physical activity in prevention and management of diabetes in primary care. The checkup series of podcasts is brought to you by Medcast. Medcast offers a range of CPD courses for doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals. Our courses range from the popular Hot Topics series of workshops and webinars to practical critical care courses. Our Diabetes and General Practice course is coming up in October. This course will run in a new format featuring two live webinars, topic-based presentations and interviews with experts and specialists. It will also feature a moderated online community of practice and handy e-summaries on the topics covered. You can purchase this course individually or as part of our newly launched GP Education Bundle that also includes the popular Hot Topics webinar series, Women's Health in General Practice and Emergencies in General Practice. To find out more, visit our website medcast.com.au. We look forward to your participation. Thank you for listening. <music>